0: again to the Word of God. Let's just ask the Lord to bless his Word to our hearts and we will step into the Scriptures again. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your mercy over our lives. We thank you for your grace, your saving grace, that we have been called out of the darkness into your marvellous light Amen. by your glorious gospel. With the expectant hope, understanding that one day we will see you face to face, We will see you in your glory and we'll never part from you again. And we will worship you forever and thank you for what you have accomplished in us in salvation so that we could be with you and the Father forever. Lord, it is a great salvation. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to the word of God and understand what a salvation is all about, Lord, you'll open our eyes from the scriptures, you'll speak to our hearts, you'll give us understanding, We thank you for the Holy Spirit. You've promised him to lead us into all truth, that he will take the things of Jesus and he will reveal them to us. We thank you for his faithful ministry and we commit our time now to you and we give you thanks. In the worthy name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen. 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 Uh, We have been looking at this question of the gospel that Paul preached. You are in... Uh, three points. I had touched the first point. That was that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is 1 Corinthians 15. We're in verse 3 and 4. <coughs> it says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There are three parts to the Gospel. And what I have observed is, we preach two parts so often we leave the middle part out. Take your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. We'll go through it step by step. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We've done that. Paul would justify his message. He would support it by the scriptures. Now you go to verse 4. And that he was buried. Full stop. That is the second part of the gospel. Right? And we don't think about it. That is the second part of the gospel. Peter preached it powerfully. Paul preached it powerfully. But so often, when we come to the gospel message itself, you will find, really, is it actually covered in the gospel message? What's it mean, and he was buried? What importance does that have to you? You've heard the gospel, you know the gospel. What importance does it have to you and me and He was buried. First, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Sin is what's dealt with at the cross. The scriptures support why the death is. He died for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That's his death. But the Bible says, and he was buried. Why is that important? Why is that part of the gospel message? Why do you think it's there? It the huh? It gives more valid to, to the resurrection. Yeah, it tells you that there is a position, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we understand water baptism, true? And we are identified with Christ. But I want you to think further. Take your Bibles, go to <coughs> Acts 13, first of all, Acts 13. we're going to read to verse 32. You are listening to Paul preach. We are given a fairly full section of what he covered in his gospel message in this uh, section here. From verse 32, after dealing with uh, what happened to Christ and, and all that, he covers all that and deals with the resurrection. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. So here comes the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have become your father. So Sam mentioned the resurrection, that's there, that's part of the gospel, there is no question. It seals the new life, he was dead, now he's alive. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. So it is sta- uh, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. What were the holy and sure blessings promised to David? It's a covenant God made with David. That from your, answer, your your descendants, I will raise up one. I will raise up one and he'll sit on your throne and his kingdom will never end. That was his covenant promise. So the Bible says he raised up Christ and he'll sit on the throne of David one day in Jerusalem. Right? So it is stated elsewhere. Please notice your wording. It's stated elsewhere. You will not let your Holy One see decay. What causes decay? What causes decay? Only one thing causes decay. Death is the end product, but only one thing causes decay. By one man, what entered this world? Sin. And the consequences of sin have passed on all men. It's appointed unto men once to die. Why? Why? When the body decays, it decays because it is a mortal body. It it has a sinful nature, which Paul talks about. In me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Can you tell me one person in whose flesh dwelt every good thing? Jesus Christ. Now tell me, when he was on the cross, what was he bearing? The sin of the world, wasn't he? And when he, he had gone through all he did in those six hours, what did he cry? It is finished. What was finished? The Bible tells you he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that act when he cried, it is finished, the work is done. Sin is put away. So what did they do? Remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came? They prepared for it. It was his, Joseph's tomb. He's a rich man in his death. So they come, they've got the cloth, they've got everything they want. They take him down from the cross, they wrap him in the cloth, and they go to the tomb, which if you go there, you go to the skull, the shape of the skull is in the rock, and above you is the place where the crosses would have been. Down on your right there is an Arab bus depot, all right down there, and there's a road goes through here, and you're up on Mount Calvary. Golgotha, the shape of the skull, you can see the skull because you're down at the tomb. And down at the tomb, the stone is rolled away and you've got a message at the top, he's not here, he's risen. (laughs) Right? That's all there in what they call the garden tomb today. If you will go to Jerusalem, that's all there. But think about it. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. When Jesus lay in that tomb, he's dead. Was he decaying? Because when you and I go to the tomb, when you and I die, do we decay? My question, when Jesus was put in that tomb for three days, three nights, he's in there, did his body decay? You remember Lazarus? Four nights he's there, by this time he stinks. Did his body decay? Yes. It broke down completely. Rotting. So when Jesus goes into the tomb, does he decay? Because it's a mortal body. It was a mortal body taken from the cross. It was not immortal. It's a mortal body. He's taken down. He's put into the tomb. Is his body now going to decay? Because yours and mine will. I'm sorry to tell you, while I might look good here, <laughs> one day the Magus will have a feed. All right? We'll break down. Dust you are, to dust you will return. That's decreed. But we are dealing with the last Adam. We're not dealing with the first Adam here, we're dealing with the last Adam. Now, big question. Your Bible says here, quoted, verse 35, so it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your Holy One see decay. David is speaking. Let's read from verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. The issue is death, then decay. That's the issue. The one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Is that important? Why is it important? It's part of the gospel. Why is it important? His body did not see decay. And Peter preaches exactly the same on the day of Pentecost. He has some remarkable words. He says, David, being a prophet, knowing God had sworn with an oath that he would raise up one to sit on his throne, spoke of Christ. His body did not see decay. So if that's the gospel they preached... Is this a content of the gospel? Yes, it is. What is so important that when Jesus was put into that tomb, his body did not see decay? What do you reckon? Now the Bible said... Yeah, he didn't. But why is it so important to us? understand, <coughs> you will not let your Holy One see decay. Why is that so important to us? I want you to think. In that body of flesh and blood on the cross, what was taking place? Six hours, he's nailed to the cross, he's lifted up, he's put there, and he goes from the ninth hour, nine o'clock, uh, from the third hour, nine, uh, Third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, in our timing, right? To three o'clock in the afternoon, time of the morning sacrifice, time of the evening sacrifice in Mark, timing is exact. He is on the cross. What is happening? What work is God doing when he is hanging on the cross there? What work is God doing? I finished the work in praying to his father. He said, <laughs> I finished the work you gave me to do. Give me the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is prayer. What work was happening at that cross? What was God dealing with at that cross that concerned you and me? Sin. The redemption of mankind. The The wages of sin is death. Unless the penalty is paid, there can be no forgiveness. It is not just. If sin causes death, And we have sinned against God. The penalty is death. That is the legal judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed unto men once to die. So it's it's a, a cloud, a shroud over the whole world. No one has come out of the grave. Elijah might have gone, but he didn't go via the grave. Enoch might have gone, but he didn't go via the grave. The grave... (coughs) has been the king of terrors. It's called in Ecclesiastes, I think it is. The king of terrors. (coughs) The fear of death is the bondage of men everywhere. The fear of death. So when you come to this fact, God never let him see decay, what was the difference between him hanging on the cross and in the tomb? All right? What work was finished? But detail what happened. Redemption is a purchased possession. All right? We are redeemed with a purchase. We are purchased. Yeah, but (coughs) give me a clear explanation of (coughs) what it means for you when Christ died on the cross. He took our sin. So he's made sin. So hanging on the cross, he is made sin. He's not a sinner. But he's bearing the sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's on Christ as a burden at that cross? The sin of the world. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So what are you seeing? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the very thing that was killing the Israelites, make a bronze serpent, put him on a pole, lift him up, and whoever looks will live. Nothing else required. If the poison's going through you, you know you're going to die. And the answer is, look. Just look. And you live. That was the promise. <clears throat> so the very thing that was killing them, the poison that the serpent, who's the ancient serpent? Who's that old serpent? The devil himself. What's he brought into the world? Sin. The poison has gone in. And so you're there like that and so you look up and you see the very thing that caused the deaths. The poison's gone in and it says, you're going to die, you're going to kill. Just look. Tell me, is that powerful preaching? Did they get it in the wilderness? Make a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole and the answer was, whoever looks, having been bitten, knowing they're going to die, Whoever looks will live. That was all that was required. And you know what you could have said? Don't believe it. Only the doctor can cure me. Right? So what's the issue? Sin no one else can deal with. Only one deals with sin. That's the issue. So having dealt with sin at the cross, where was the sin? He dealt with sin. He said, it is finished. So tell me, was he bearing the sin of the world at the cross? When he cried, it is finished, is he still bearing it? (laughs) Some people are getting convinced. All right? A great change took place from the time he cried, it is finished. Sin had gone. Read your book of Hebrews. (laughs) He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So if sin is gone, he has got none on him. Has he? So when he's put into the tomb, there is no sin on him. So what's that mean? He will not decay. How do you know your sin's gone? Because the Bible tells you he would not allow his Holy One to see to, to, to see decay. You say, that all you've got to preach about or supply? No. If you understand the feasts God gave to Israel, you'll completely understand what we've just said. What is the first feast to Israel? Passover. So he is the Passover lamb, isn't he? So in Jewish feasts, it's the 14th day of the first month of the year for them. Month of Abib, or Nisan. So here you have a fixed time and a fixed event. And they've got a Passover lamb, which is blood is shed, put on the doorpost, and we call that Passover. Passover. Why? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will not allow the destroying angel to come in. He can't touch you. Why? The blood tells you the death has taken place. Tell me, is he your Passover lamb? Has his his blood sprinkled your conscience, your heart from a guilty conscience? Because that's what Hebrews says. Your sin has been dealt with and you know it. That is your position. So, what do the feasts in order? Think of your feasts in order: Passover. What's the next day? Special Sabbath. You were in unleavened bread. All right. If I had a, a, a diagram, I would put it on there. All right. But I, I want you to picture what's there. The feast of unleavened bread is seven days. It begins the day after Passover. They can't do anything. It's special Sabbath. You do no work. So, special Sabbath. Seven days, including that, and the last one is a special Sabbath. So, if God wants to convey a message of a complete work, which creation was, He has the first day a special Sabbath, the last day a special Sabbath, and it goes seven days. He is telling you three times it's complete, isn't He? If I understand the days and the, and the testimony on that. Now, <coughs> What is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? You go to Israel, anyone who's been to Israel, and you there in Passover time, they will tell you if you want ordinary bread, you buy it before Passover. There will be no bread, you know, the spongy kind with, right? None. The only bread you will get is the matzah, the biscuit, which is striped and pierced, which they will celebrate the Passover with without knowing what they're doing. Here is unleavened bread. It's the feast of unleavened bread. What is the message of unleavened bread? Men, bread without yeast. What is the message of yeast or leaven? You mix your flour together, and the moisture, you put a little bit of yeast or leaven in and you let it sit and it will just break down the whole time. Corruption. Decay. That's what's there. So why did God have a feast of unleavened bread? This is my body which is broken for you. My flesh I will give for the life of the world. So when he's in the tomb there, he did not see decay because he did no longer carry sin. It was put away at the cross. That is a complete answer, isn't it? Is that what took place? Is it important to preach he was buried? Because when he was buried, he saw no decay. Go back to Peter. Go back to Acts 2 because this is what Peter preached. Go back to Acts 2. We're down. We're down to his, um, quote, verse 25, we'll read. (coughs) Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching the gospel. Verse 25. David said about him, that's about Christ. He quotes from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, My body also will live in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Is that clear? What is Peter preaching? That body that was in the tomb, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So what's that mean to you? Only sin causes decay. He had no sin when he was in the tomb. He had put it away at the cross. Huh? Yeah, that's another teaching. (coughs) That wipes that teaching out. All right? That he had to go into hell as a sinner and he had to suffer the flames of hell and to be born again. Forget it. It's completely wiped out if you'll understand what the Bible is teaching. His body saw no decay. He had no sin. When the devil comes to you and accuses you, you know, sin, 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 where is your sin? It has been put away, hasn't it? Let me ask you, and you've got to think things through. When God looked at your life, and Christ is at the cross, and, Your life lies way ahead. Maybe he missed out seeing something I did. Huh? What about that? Did he bear your sin on the tree? Will you enter heaven? Because let me tell you this. No sin will be allowed in God's presence. No sin. When you look at the Garden of Eden, the reason the cherubim were there and the flaming sword, because Adam and Eve had committed one sin. And they were driven out and they weren't allowed black in. And even when they were covered with garments of skins where blood was shed, and they put those skins on to replace the fig leaves, which was their own works, and they took what God provided, they were still driven out because no sin can be in God's presence. And a flaming sword turning every way to keep the way to the tree of life. Meaning you can't come, you can't enter. This is God's presence. And to prove it, the cherubim are there. And if you want to know what cherubim do, day and night, Revelation 4, it says, they cry in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. What are they concerned with? The absolute holiness of God. he They will not allow sin in. You're dealing with God. God. This is from um, Habakkuk. God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He can't look at sin. Remember what Moses said? I beseech you, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my face and live. I will pass by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, I'll put my hand over you, but you can't see my face and live. God is holy with a holiness that is untainted and will remain for eternity, untainted by sin. God is holy. That's his being. And we don't realize how intensely holy God is. He can't look on sin. And they'd only committed one. One disobedience was all they had done. One command was broken. Only one. And they could not come in. Even though a substitute animal died in their place, they could not come in. If you tried to come in to the Garden of Eden, if you did, way back there, what would happen to you? That sword would cut you down. Your blood would be shed, you would die. And the fire of God's holiness would turn you to ashes. That is the first understanding of what is called in your Bible the whole burnt offering. Which, remember, Abram was commanded to do with Isaac. Offer him for a burnt offering, a amount I will show you of. So what happens? God wakens him in the night. Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. Take now your son, your only son, meaning, not talking about Ishmael, I'm talking about the one who is promised. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, is that a father son relationship? God the father, God the son? Ah, do they love? There is a perfection of love between the father and the son. And you know what you'll hear today? And it's a confirmation of prophecy. There's a man who runs a big ministry in TV and supports many missions in social issues and helps. Listen carefully. This is what he teaches to say that god the father would treat his son as is taught by you that is he killed his own son is cosmic abuse you ever read 2 peter chapter 2 verse 1 listen carefully <clears throat> there will be false prophets there were false prophets among the people there will be false teachers among you they will privily, secretly bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who brought, bought them. He brought them, these that teach it, he bought them. They'll even deny it. What is the gospel? What happened at the cross? This is what happened. <coughs> when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, remember? And he told them, when Peter said, after he told them, all of you will leave, you'll run tonight, you'll flee, because it's written, smite the shepherd, sheep will be scattered. You go back to the beginning of that verse from Zechariah 13, it says, awake, O sword. What's that mean? Sword is inactive. The sword is not operating. Awake, O sword, against the man who is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. What are you seeing? You are seeing the Garden of Eden, you are seeing the flaming sword, and it's not man coming as man, it is God's provided man, his own son. And he wants eternal life. He doesn't want any man to perish. He's not willing for it. So, what happens? The father doesn't want men to perish. So he brings his son into the world and the son now for us to have eternal life. The son comes and the sword awakes and it's the son on the cross. And the sword comes down. And he said, I thirst. Why? The fire's doing its work. We don't understand the sufferings of Christ. But in those intensity of suffering, He is satisfying the just demands of God for the sin of the world. Tell me, have we got a message for the world? We've got to present it like that. That's what it means. God's not willing that any perish. He wants them to come to repentance and acknowledge the truth. So we have a very powerful message to preach. Haven't we? So there are three facts. One, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I don't know whether you believe that or not, but the fact is there. All right? (laughs) Tell me, will he remember? He said, I will remember the iniquities. There's the new covenant. I remember. I won't remember. I will remember not their iniquities anymore. It's out of my memory. It's gone. Tell me, can you approach God with confidence? Can you come into God's presence with confidence? Because you're coming by the blood of Jesus. That's why you're coming. Nothing you have done, you understand what he did. He shed his blood for the sin of your soul. And that sin has been put away. So when you're coming into the Father's presence, you're not pleading any value of Your own. You are coming in the understanding of what Christ has done for you. He loved me. He gave Himself for me. Listen carefully. It's in Ephesians five and verse one and two. You can look it up in your Bible if you like. But this is what it says. (coughs) I've forgotten what it is. (laughs) You better look it in your Bible. You will understand that after teaching (coughs) eight hours, no, yeah, seven hours a day for the last 14 14 so days, my mind is tired, sorry. (coughs) So if I say things that are wrong, please forgive me. If you disagree with me, it may be that I didn't say it right. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. mine has got an NIV, the imitators of God. So if you're going to imitate God, what are we going to imitate? Therefore, if we imitate God, therefore as dearly beloved, that is, loved by the Father, dearly beloved children, and live a life of love. Notice, just as, in exactly the same way, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, that substitution, What what is? A fragrant offering and sacrifice. You may have a sweet-smelling savour to God, a sweet aroma to God. That phrase is reserved for the whole burnt offering, that sweet-smelling sacrifice. Christ became my sweet-smelling sacrifice, my whole burnt offering. He took my place, He bore my sin, and he suffered that judgment for my sin. That's what happened at the cross. He loved you. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He substituted himself in my place. It is not cosmic abuse. It is God's way of salvation. So is it important? Yes, it is. We have an amazing message, don't we? so we have three facts Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried he rose again the third day according to the scriptures so what do you have in the the middle of this seven days of unleavened bread he rises first day of the week he comes out he is resurrected from the dead now I'm going to take you on a journey it's not too much time left to When I want to take you on a journey which really uh, made me aware of how little I had sat in the scripture and thought. I'm going to take you on a journey which I trust uh, thrills your soul the same as it I suddenly did mine when I saw it. All right? I want to take you in. My question was this. What is it? What is it really? that changed these disciples from fearful men who locked the door after their leader was taken by the government and all the religious leaders and the police. They've taken their leader. They've watched what has happened to their leader. And they realize what happened to him is going to happen to them. So they have locked the door and says for fear of the Jews, they had the door locked in this room where they would meet. So that's their position. They're fearful. My question was what really changed these <coughs> disciples from fearing like this to bold, strong, <coughs> standing for truth, you know, willing to be outspoken and saying, We ought to obey God rather than you. You judge. You know, they're bold before authorities. They're bold in their statements. What changed these fearful disciples into those kind of men? Well, I'm going to take you, there is a pathway. You say baptism of the Spirit, Uh, there's more than that. That changed these men into bold proclaimers of the gospel that had been commissioned to them. So I'm going to take you through on a pathway. All right. So this is the pathway I'm going to take you on. How many of the disciples, the twelve, how many were at the cross? One. John. What happened to the rest? Peter followed afar off till he got to the high priest's house and then there was no more of Peter. He went out and wept bitterly. What about the others? Mark left. Mark's gospel is written. There was a young man, and he fled. He left his clothes behind. He was naked. He fled. He wasn't going to be taken, because Jesus said, "All of you will run from me tonight." So they all ran. Because what? When you read your Bible, wasn't a few came? There was a crowd that came, and they had swords. They had everything they wanted. They were coming to get a dangerous man. Right? They had to be taken. So they all fled because of what is there. Remember, Peter pulled his sword out. He had two swords. He had two swords he pulled off. <laughs> off went his ear. <laughs> right? Jesus put it back. Right. Everything is miraculous as far as he is concerned. The supernatural never ceases where he is present. And he said, Who have you come to seek? Christ. I am. And they fell backwards. They didn't fall forwards, they fell backwards. <clears throat> if you're meeting with God, you'll find they fell forward in, fear, in adoration. Here they meet him and they're not believers, they fall backwards. And he said, he repeated the question, so they took him. So off they go and we have the story of what happened in the house where Peter denied him. We have him in the trial, we have everything that went on. The only one who knew that was John, who followed afar off, and Mary, his mother. Mary, his mother. What's that? And the four women. Yeah, we'll leave the four women. I want to concentrate on Mary. Mary, his mother, because she is going to watch what happens to her son. Remember? She treasured all these things in her heart. And now she is... And remember the prophecy on Mary a sword will pierce your own soul. That's the prophecy she received (coughs) about this one that was born. Like that. So, the women, women are there, women of Jerusalem are all along. When he's carrying his cross like this, they're all along. And what do they see? This man who can hardly carry his cross For they compelled Simon the Syrian to carry it. They're weeping for him. What did he say? Women, Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. If this is what they do when the tree is green, that is, the temple's still here, Jerusalem still exists. If this is what they do when it's like that, what will happen when the tree is dry? There's no life left here. So we go to the cross. So who is at the cross? Mary, the other women, Their are named, they're there, and John. So does J- who hears the words spoken? Seven sentences are announced by Jesus from the cross. Amazing sentences. One of them is, woman, speaking to Mary, woman, behold your son. So John is here, Mary is there. We're getting a picture. They are real close to the cross. The crowd is watching and they're passing by because even even today the road goes by like this. And as they pass by on the road, what are they doing? They're mocking. You said, destroy this temple, this building in three days uh, and you will rebuild it? They said, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. And the two thieves, eh? Put your Gospels together. Both of them said, if you're the Christ, save us and yourself. If that's what you are. So they mocked him. And what happens? What are the the soldiers doing at the bottom? They've got his clothes. So they're casting lots for his clothes. He has got nothing on. It's a shame. He's naked before the world. That's the cross. And so mad is he, Isaiah 50. 2 says, his visage, his form was so marred, more than any man's. He was unrecognizable as a man. You say, why? Well, they thrust a crown of thorns on his head, long thorns, and then they hit him on the head. So the thorns are going in, 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 and blood streaming down. And what do they do? They take him and they lash him. It's not Jewish. 40 save one, thirty-nine. 39, these are Romans lashing him till his back is a ploughed field. I'm only quoting scripture. So what happens then? They take his beard and they pull it out. Is he suffering? They blindfolded him and the soldiers smashed him by fist, one to the other, prophesy who hit you. He is just beaten to a pulp. That is how we sinners treated the Saviour sent from heaven. You say, that's what they did, I would never do that. We hated God till God's love registered with us that he loved us in our sin. We're backbiters, haters of God. So this is what is happening to him. How would the other disciples know anything about what happened at the cross? Because when I read my Bible in Mark, for three days they had been weeping and mourning. Intensity of sorrow. Why? The leader's gone. It's finished. There is no news. So they have asked the other... They were not there. I want you to think. This is what went on in that upper room. Those who were not there would say... Tell us what happened. Do you understand that? They weren't there. Mary is in the upper room. We know that. John is in the upper room. They are the two main ones who could tell everything that happened. So they're getting information in three days as they gather together. They're filling in the missing understanding of everything that took place in detail. Even the centurion in front of the cross when he cried out, Truly, this was the Son of God. The whole wording of the crowd, of the the thieves, everything. They took it all in. They understood what happened. The only place in your Bible where this is put down is the end of Luke. Please go to the end of Luke, Luke 24. I used to wonder why. We're down in Luke 24. We're down in verse 44. Jesus is with them in the upper room where he had stood in the midst of them. Verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is the only place where the Psalms is added. Everywhere else in your Bible, it is the law and the prophets. So my question when I come to that was, why did you add the Psalms? And now I've put you in the condition... They, these disciples were in. We're talking about how did they have such confidence? God is building their understanding. All right? So what is happening here? He says, this is what is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms. Take your Bible. Turn to Psalm 22. Remember what it says. The only time, otherwise than that, is law and the prophets. Tell me, how does Psalm twenty-two begin? How does Psalm twenty-two begin? Is that familiar? So, what are they? What are they hearing? The Psalms. What have they already heard? They heard him cry at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus doing? Taking them to the Psalms, meaning this is what is written, this is what happened. That's how you preach the gospel. The Psalms, the prophecies of the Old Testament, you say are perfectly fulfilled by Christ. You preach Christ and Him crucified. True? What is Jesus doing? Opening, it says He opened their understanding. They've listened as they've heard the description of what happened there. And I I, I am giving you Nicholson's interpretation of how he applied the Psalms, all right? But I think it's it's pretty well on, on, on course, all right? So they're there and he is taking the Psalms and I guarantee he would have taken Psalm 22 and he would have started. Psalm 22 verse 1, he just would have said, Do you remember? Because they knew the Psalms. You remember what it says in in Psalm 22? What is there written there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that what they told you about what happened to the cross? They were my words from the cross. What's it mean? You are fulfilling Psalm 22. This one standing before them is going to fulfill Psalm 22. That's how it's introduced. Now you go on further down in the psalm. And you'll notice this. We'll we'll just go quickly through. I'll just take bits out. Psalm uh, 22, verse 6 and 7. And verse (coughs) 8. He said, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. If you had have listened to those disciples describing what took place in the cross, what would you have heard? The mockery of the crowd. They were talking how they mocked him. So they, they talked about it. You said, you said, destroy this temple, three days you raise it up. Come on, do it, and we'll believe. That was the very words. And they remembered. That's what he had said. The first time he went in, Passover, he went into the temple. He drove them out. And then and the, the priest said, What authority have you to do this? And he said, destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up. And they said, 46 years this temple was building and you say you'll do it in three days? They never forgot. So they mocked him. What's your Bible say? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And these are the very words the disciples would have said, would have heard at the, the, um, described to them. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver since he delights in him. They're the very words the crowd was saying. They've heard it all. What happened at the cross? And all Jesus is doing is saying, it's written. It's written. This is what happened. How are you going to preach the gospel? You will take the Gospel, the Law, the Prophets and the Psalms and you'll preach the cross. You'll preach the cross. You go down in there and you'll have a bit more in there. (coughs) There's very descriptive words. Verse 16. Verse 16 to 18 of the same Psalm. Dogs have surrounded me A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Is that the cross? So when they were not at the cross, they'd fled. So what happened? They are being told they nailed him to that cross and they lifted the cross up. They pierced his hands and his feet. That's what they've heard described to them what happened now jesus stands in their midst and takes the psalms and makes them live this is what it said and this is what happened let me say this prophecy is unfulfilled history when prophecy is fulfilled it becomes history there are prophecies of the old testament many christ fulfilled them perfectly it has become history. Our justification for our message is that God prophesied by the prophets before it happened and then he perfectly fulfilled those prophecies when his son went to the cross. That's the gospel we preach and the reason he was at that cross was he was dying for your sin and mine. That is our message to the world, isn't it? That's a, it's an offence. It's a stumbling block to the Jew, but it's foolishness to a Greek, a Gentile. What power is there? The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's as simple as that. You believe the gospel. Isn't that the requirement? <clears throat> so you go down further there. You'll notice what it says in uh, verse 17 and 18. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. What an expression. That's how he felt at the cross. They're staring at me. They're gloating over me. That's how the crowd were treating him. Notice the last part. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Did it happen exactly? Written hundreds of years before. This is David's psalm perfectly fulfilled, exact. So, is that how you preach the cross? You have to tell what happens at that cross. Paul said, God forbid that I should... (coughs) I better turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One Corinthians chapter one, <clears throat> verse two, one Corinthians, 1, uh, sorry, one Corinthians two and verse two. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Tell me, was that the condition of these disciples in that room? Were they fearful? When he came in, were they fearful? They'd locked the doors. They were full of fear. Came in. He said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So where does your faith rest? In the power of God. You say, what power? The power of God to put away sin." There's no other work to equal it, is it? This is the whole world is locked up under sin. That's the charge of the court of God in Romans. The whole world, we're locked up. Is there a power in the gospel? It's the power of God to salvation. Why? In it, a righteousness from God is revealed. Not yours, but his. In absolute righteousness, God dealt with Our sin. And he took your place and mine. And he suffered the consequences because he loved you. And the Father did it because he loved you. We have a message. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Is that the gospel? It is. It's as simple as that, but it is profound. When we are called to preach, we are called to preach what is a stumbling block to the Jew. That is, Jesus is not their Messiah. That's the stumbling block. To the Greek, the Gentile, it's foolishness that this should be the means by which we should be saved. Is that what happens? If you will believe the gospel and come to Christ when he calls you out of sin and say, I'm leaving my past behind, And I want to be forgiven. And I come to you like that. Will God (coughs) perform what he's promised? I give them eternal life. Will he do it? Does his promise stand? It must. Standing on the promises of Christ my King through eternal ages, let his praises ring. I'll give you a hymn if I remember it all. No more veil, God bids me enter, by the new and living way. Not in trembling hope I venture, boldly, confidently, his call obey. There with him, my God I meet, God upon the mercy seat. When you come to Christ, it's a heavenly calling. He's entered heaven with his own blood. Is your name down in the register of heaven? That's where it has to be. The day we are born again of God's Spirit, there is a registered name in heaven that this is my child, my son. Eternal issues are satisfied. When you accept God's simple gospel and you come to Christ, God will do his part. And you will experience peace that only God can give. The peace of sins forgiven and the knowledge that you have now have a heavenly father. I will never forget, because I was a very religious little man, all right, a little boy, because I used to teach Sunday school and I used to go to church in the morning, the Anglican and Presbyterian in the afternoon because I'm in the country, all right? That was me. But I came close to death twice and I knew I, in my little understanding, I knew I weren't ready to go. I felt, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what's the other side, I, I've been at Sunday school and all that, and I thought about these things. Then I went on a, what do you call a scripture union camp. all right, And I heard the gospel clearly laid out for me. And I believed what I heard. I'd never heard it in the church, it was a modernistic church, never heard it. And it registered. So I just accepted what I heard. And I can remember I remember we were on the farm, in the bed, out in the bush. I remember lying on bed saying, for the first time, Father, Father, I've got a Father. He sends the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Father. A birth has taken place. I am in the family of God. That is a depth of assurance that comes to the soul, that comes to Christ, on the grounds God has laid out. It's now half past eight. All right? That's taken you an hour. Do you Ballarat people want to go back now? I will take you a bit further because there's there's some immense truths laid out in the scripture. What I've done just now is taken you to the fact (coughs) the gospel is clear. It's simple, but it's very profound. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 because we've laid out the gospel as it stands and we're going to look at what is said there. 1 Corinthians 15, we're reading from verse 1. This is after three chapters have dealt with (coughs) the gifts of the Spirit, their operation in the church, and a lot of things like that particularly now we come to the chapter 15 now brothers i want to remind you of what the gospel which gospel paul the one i preached to you <clears throat> and he says which you received on which you've taken your stand is that your position did you receive this gospel Did you take your stand on that gospel? These Corinthians did. By this gospel, you're saved. Notice, it's the message. The gospel, by this gospel, you're saved. There isn't any other. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. What's that mean? Don't dare change it. Don't dare change it. You hold firmly, gospel, I preach to you. You know what it says in Galatians? All these churches, Galatia is a big area in Turkey, all these churches in Galatia are the result of Paul's missionary efforts. And then false teachers came through all those churches and taught them. You Gentiles, you have to come under the law of Moses to be saved. You must be circumcised, you Gentiles, and you must come under the law of Moses to be saved. That was what the teaching was. And the whole book of Galatians is devoted to rectifying, correcting that whole false teaching that had taken all these churches. Now go to the book of Galatians, stay here, hold your finger there, go to the book of Galatians, which is just a bit over, and Galatians 1, and this is what he says. This is how important it is to maintain the truth of this gospel. Verse 6, Galatians 1, verse 6. He said, I'm astonished, I am shocked, that you so quickly left, departed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. He didn't say, (coughs) you you departed. He said, I'm shocked you so quickly did it. He expected problems from the deceiver. But that it happened so quickly, that was what astonished Paul. Notice, (coughs) you're turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert or twist the gospel of Christ. Now notice the warnings. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached, let him be eternally condemned. Now if you get an angel from heaven coming with a message, it's going to sound very real and powerfully given because it's an angel who's given it. That's the history of sex in the church, isn't it? It's the history of error in the world. Angels bring messages to people. Even if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel. So what's the measure? The gospel I gave you, he said, is the measure. So when people come, do you measure what you hear? How are you going to measure it? You must use what we have been given, which is the gospel of Christ, which has three facts to it. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the message. And the reason it's given like that is sin is the problem. That's why it's preached. Whoever is there, sin is there, psychiatrists, psychiatrists, psychologists, they will not help you. The drugs they give you will only damage you. What do we need? We need the reality of the saving grace of Christ in our life. Without that, you will never have any peace in your heart. And you will have a guilty accusing conscience because you remember what you have done in the past. And you realize it's sitting there in your memory. What are you going to do with it? Because one day you are going to stand before the God of all creation. And he's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? I gave him. I gave him for you. What did you do with him? Did you come to him? Did you accept his offer? Or did you turn your back on him? Say, I'm not going to receive your truth. I'm going my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. It's called iniquity. Each of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So please notice in Galatians here, it is repeated. Galatians 1, verse 9. He said, As we have already said, so now I say again, he repeats it, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. It's some of the strongest statements you will have in your Bible in the New Testament. Reason. Eternal condemnation means what it says. But the reason it's so important is it is repeated. He didn't say it once, he said it twice. And I learnt from Pharaoh's dreams way back in your Old Testament, when Joseph came in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he'd had two Remember the she of the, uh, the, the cattle came out of the river Nile, seven of them, and then seven skinny ones ate up the seven fat ones. And he fell asleep. Then he woke up, uh, had a, another dream, and there's seven fat lots of corn cobs, plants came out. Then seven skinny ones came up and ate up the seven fat ones. And he was troubled. None of his, his diviners, his astrologers, they couldn't give him the meaning. And that was when that cupbearer said, Ah, I remember my error. Two years ago, I was in prison. And there was a Hebrew man in there. And we had a dream. But the baker and myself, we had dreams. We told it to this man. He interpreted exactly. Pharaoh said, go, send for him. So Joseph was brought out. And he was prepared to go into the presence of Pharaoh. And he told Pharaoh what the dreams meant. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And this is what he said. Because God has given it to you twice... It's sure, don't you make a mistake, it's sure. So every time in the Bible from there on, wherever God repeats a matter, what's he saying? It's sure, don't you make a mistake. The King James is a good Bible because it says, verily, verily, I say to you, repeatedly, amen, amen, so will it be, so will it be. Statement after statement. Paul is saying here, you change the gospel. It's an awful end. It's an awful end. He's speaking to the churches in Galatia. They had heard another teacher's come through, wrecking what Paul had taught them, moving away from the grace of Christ. And so he is warning them, you don't accept another gospel, what we preach to you. So when you come to Corinthians, the gospel by which you're saved, on which you've taken your stand, which you received. Keep it in memory. Hold fast to that. Now you go down, and there's an amazing statement. Go down into verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 15. Please notice the consistency of our Bible. Verse 11. Notice what it says. (coughs) Paul is writing whether it was I or they, meaning Paul himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, the other apostles, that's he's including all the apostles, whether I or they, this is what we preached. This is what you believed. Tell me, is he emphatic? He's laid out the gospel. That's what they preached. Is that what we expect to hear in an evangelistic meeting? When evangelists go out, are they going to carry the gospel? Are they going to carry this gospel? Is that what we expect to hear? If we are going to be consistent, biblically, yes it is. They're at the forefront of the battle. These people who are going out to untouched areas, people who've never heard the gospel, never had the Bible in their own language, and there are still areas like that, That's where you expect the miracles to take place. Am I clear? Because the Bible indicates that's what happened to the church. They went out. They were scattered. And when they were scattered, that's when things started to happen. Remember? Philip the evangelist, he went down to Samaria. What happened when Philip down there? He preached. And there were miracles took place. And so they were, bele- so they were baptized. <laughs> and you go right through your book of Acts. They preached, they suffered the consequences. and there were many. Did God work with them? Did God confirm the word that was preached in the book of Acts? Did he? Yes, yes it does. Take your Bible. Turn to Mark. The book of Mark. But then at the end of Mark, Mark sixteen. He's dealt with the need for them to preach the gospel in verse 15, verse 19. Mark 16, verse 19. This is what it says. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them. He was taken up into heaven. He sat on the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Notice what your Bible says. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Is that the pattern we have? Is that what should happen? That's what the Bible teaches. Take your Bible turn to Hebrews chapter two. We're going to read from verse two. Hebrews two, verse two, this is what he writes. Hebrews 2, verse 2. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, you say, what is? That is the law, the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai that he's referring to. And every violation and disobedience of what was given there received its just punishment. If that's what happened with the law of Moses coming down like that. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Notice, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Same message. Jesus preached it. Remember he, he showed the disciples what had happened was the answer. Notice verse 4. God also testified to it with... <coughs> Signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Is that the pattern or not? Is that what we are to expect when the gospel goes out? We are. Take your Bible, turn into Romans 15. Romans 15, we're down in verse 17 down to verse 19. This is Paul speaking and remember he's gone out, he's preaching the gospel. Verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. What two things go together in the Bible, as far as the church is concerned? Two things, inseparable. One, you preach the gospel, God will confirm it with signs, wonders and miracles. It's inseparable. Big question, if there's no signs and wonders and miracles when we are going out into the world to carry the gospel, are we really preaching the true gospel? Isn't that a valid question? Have we preached the gospel? You and I have lived through a Pentecostal era of what is called the health, wealth, prosperity teaching. Haven't we? That has been the message. That has been the gospel. Is that the gospel? Or is what I outlined today in you, in the the scriptures here, is this a completely different one? Is there any relationship between the message of you can have health, you can have wealth, you can have prosperity, that is why Christ died? Or is it a message that is offensive? You're a sinner. You're proven to be a sinner. The world is guilty before God. You need a saviour. God has provided the means. Do you expect conviction of sin in those who hear? Is God going to work with you? If he works, there will be conviction of sin. And once you get conviction of sin, you're going to have people troubled. Do you know this? Billy Graham, when he first came here in Australia to Sydney, I think it was the 1950s, and he had those meetings there, when he left, The tax department got a lot of money. Uh, Was his preaching effective? Yes. Lives were convicted. They had stolen money from the government. They hadn't declared their proper taxes. And the tax department got a lot of money. Is something happening? Is the Holy Spirit at work? Yes, he is. (laughs) Do we expect that kind of thing? We should. There must come conviction. And with that conviction, a troubled life that wants to set things right and get right with a God who's holy. That's it. If that's not the fruit of evangelistic preaching and teaching, then maybe the message is not right. Maybe you'll get a crowd. Maybe you'll get people happy. But will you get them holy? Will you get them weeping for their lives, knowing they are not where they should be? Fiji, when I went there, was the passing of a move of God. And the assembly of God was known as the Church of Tears. So that when there was meetings, and the meeting finished, They would come to the altar as their need was and the church was wet with tears, weeping their way to God in reconciling, wanting peace with God. Is that real? Is that happening today? Or is it strobe lights and dark walls and jumping up and down and all kinds of things? Where are we going? Is there a reality in the scriptures that we don't find today. And this has troubled me. If I'm going to be honest with God, I don't know where you are, but I have to be honest with God. And when I assess what I see and I hear, for the most part, I am deeply troubled. I am longing for reality, the reality of God's movement in the church, I'll finish with this. It's now a quarter to nine. nine. I'll finish with this because I can't leave without this. If you'll take your Bible, go back to Luke 11. Because here lies the answer. Luke 11. We're reading from verse 11. I don't know where you are at in your personal relationship with God, but Jesus is dealing with personal relationship with God in our text. (coughs) Luke 11, verse 11. He sets a lesson. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Well, what's the answer? Any father would say, "No way, I'm not going to give my son a snake if he asks for a fish. Even though we've got a wreckage of society around it, I don't think anyone would do that, Some may, but nevertheless. <coughs> or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Is that what you do? You fathers." And he said, "You evil, you, fa- you fathers, you are evil." You're controlled by your sinful nature. And yet your son asks you for something. He's hungry, he's, he wants something. Were you going to give him something that will hurt him? Will you give him what he needs? That's the issue. So then he takes it. Notice he applies it. Verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, <coughs> To your children. And here is that which is left out of this section in your other gospels. This is only Luke. Please notice it's isolated to Luke because Luke has particularly a special message through to us Gentiles. Notice, if that's what a father does who's evil, gives good gifts, how much more in far greater measure will Your father in heaven. Now tell me, is there a relationship already established? Your father in heaven. What's it mean? He's already a son. Or she's already a son. You say, but I'm a woman, I'm not a son. In the kingdom of God, when you come to Christ, you are a son of God. Because that's what you will be. An inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, you are a son. The inheritance is ours. There's neither male nor female when we're dealing with the things of God. So here we come, <clears throat> there's a relationship, and he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? what your Bible tell you? The Holy Spirit to them that ask him. You say, but I ask and I ask and I never get it. Some people are like that, aren't they? What's the, what's, what's the Bible speaking about? It's saying thirst, thirst. What was the parable? It's midnight. Your friend is in bed. The doors are locked. The children are there. And he said he's been asleep. He wakes him up. Imagine, midnight, bang, bang, bang on the door. What do you want? A friend has come of mine and I've got no bread. I know you've got bread. Give me some bread. Listen, I'm in bed. I'm here with my children. I'm not, The door is locked. I'm not going to get up. He, Jesus said, he won't get up because he's his friend. He will get up because he's persistent. He doesn't give up. Some of you question, will God give the Holy Spirit? I'm a son. Will he give it to me? Well, he gives good gifts to those who ask him. He's a faithful father. Is it a reality? Yes, it's meant to be a reality in 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 the life of every child of God, every son of God. Is the Holy Spirit coming into your life in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is that real? Does it happen today? The promises haven't failed. Standing on the promises of Christ my Lord, Where do you stand? I've got eternal life. I've got it through the cross. But in your whole Bible, in the book of Acts, there is an unchanging order. From Acts 2 to Acts 8 to Acts 10 to Acts 19, the order never changes. You're born again. After that will come the filling of the Holy Spirit. Done on Acts 2, done in Acts 8, done in Paul's life in Acts 9 done in Acts 10 with Cornelius' household and done in the Ephesian church in Acts 19. That's the pattern. It's set out. Have you become thirsty for the presence of God in your life? Those of us who have known what it is for the Holy Spirit to come on us, have we got to stir up the fire within us? And that's where I am at. Do we need to stir up? the fire that is in us that we have received the Holy Spirit to come upon us with one purpose, that we proclaim this gospel here with confidence and with boldness. In the the state you live in, you state of Victoria, you are the state who brings all the wrong things into our whole nation. (laughs) Queensland is now getting ahead of you, all right? Because we have passed the law, passing the law, that you can kill the unborn right even after they're born. We are needing a very powerful move of God's people to stand for truth today before a world that is plunging on into judgment. May God give us the grace and the thirst to know God's presence in reality in our lives so we can be lights in the world, holding forth the word of life unashamedly, even if it is politically incorrect and means prison. you know we're facing it? Do you know that's real? That's where we have got to now. Isn't it? You are watching it happen. It's happening before our very eyes and we need the presence and power of God amongst ourselves to unite together, to pray like they prayed in the early church and to stand for truth like the early church did. I think it's a pattern. I don't think it's changed and I see our great need. I've laid it out before you. It's been the burden of my heart when I've got into this book of Acts. I've got a lot more there. There's a lot lot there. I didn't realise there's so much. There's a lot there. But if I can create within you, in the little time I'm with you, an intensity of desire for seeking God, that the reality that is described in his word may become in our lives and we may become living witnesses. God bless you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the time together. Thank you, Brother Morris.